Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word this day from Galatians chapter 3 as we continue on in our series in Galatians this morning. Galatians 3, verses 19 through 25. 3:19 to 25. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. It's God's word for his people. You may be seated. And let's go to our God in prayer and ask for the help we need to understand his word this morning. So, Father, we do ask that you would pour out your grace upon us through the sending of your Spirit to help us understand your word. For the natural person cannot know your truth without you revealing it to us. But we know that we are not left alone, even this day, for you've promised that you would Give eyes to see the glory of your truth in your word to your people by your spirit. So come amongst us and teach us more about your son, more about your redemptive purposes, more about the glory we see in the gospel in which we stand. In Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Now this uh, is a difficult sermon. Uh, So I just say that out front. I I uh, didn't know if I was going to say it up front because sometimes when you say things like that up front, some of you are already like, okay, I'm just going to be here for the ride uh, and uh, I'll try and figure it out later. So, but don't do that. Don't give up right away. Uh, there, are, there are difficulties. I'm going to try and help us through uh, and uh, try to get us some summaries throughout to get us some hooks back in. So if I lose you at a point, I'm going to try to summarize at the end of each one. So just, just try and stick with me. I know, I know you've been, well, you haven't been sitting. You will be sitting for a while, but uh, you've been standing up. So if you need to stretch, it's okay. I don't see anything that goes on really up here. Unless you come right down here and do jumping jacks, I'm pretty much oblivious. So if you need to give yourself a stretch, it's okay, because these are some difficult verses, uh, just like we were last time. Uh, and, and we need to go through these difficult verses, because they're necessary. Uh, during my first few weeks of seminary, I was walking to class and overheard some students debating an obscure theological topic. Uh, it's nothing wrong with that, if you got the time to do it, and you really want to debate one word in Latin and here and there and something like that, okay, there's, there's places for obscure theological debates. Theology is supposed to help us know and love and enjoy God more. So if that's a way for you to do it, that's cool, all right? Just some of us don't really enjoy arguing about 16th century obscure theological topics, all right? And you're just like on the, on, on the middle of my Tuesday when everything seems to be falling apart, that, that doesn't seem to really help me out a whole lot. 
And there are some obscure theological topics that if you don't know ever happened, you're still going to be enjoying eternal life with Jesus if your faith's in him, okay? That doesn't mean there's no place for it. It just means for some of us, maybe for most of us, they don't really touch our everyday life. There are, however, theological debates that do matter, that everyone in the church should know the answer to. And today's text is one of those issues. Why the law? And we know this is a crucial topic and something we all need to know the answer to because the Galatians got the answer wrong and were turning to a false gospel, which means it was a life and death matter, the answer to this theological debate. It's not obscure. It's central. It's an important one we all should know the answer to. Because the central question in Galatians is how does God save sinners? How does God save sinners? And Paul's clearest answer so far is found in Galatians 2, verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in, G in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And so then Paul just keeps expounding on this answer. As we saw in chapter 3 so far, the Gentiles are true members of God's family because it doesn't have anything to do with ethnicity anymore. It's by faith alone in Jesus alone. And we know Gentiles were made part of God's family because they received the promised blessings of Abraham of justification, being declared righteous before God, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, anyone who attempts to be justified before God and to receive the promises by law as opposed to faith, Paul says we're under a curse. You're, you will be cursed. So the promise takes priority in God's redemptive plan in salvation history. Not only because no one can keep the law perfectly, which he talks about in 10, verses 10 through 14. You can't keep the law perfectly. But not only that, it's also because the law came 430 years after God's promise to Abraham. Now, what Paul is doing here is what theologians call discontinuity. It's, it's not a continuous thing from the Abraham to the Mosaic covenants. The Mosaic law isn't an extension of God's promise to Abraham. If you remember, I tried to explain that and illustrate it by way of a coloring page. It's not that Abraham's promise, or God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 15, is a blank coloring sheet uh, with just the outlines, and the Mosaic law is the crayon box that colors it in for us. There's something inherently in discontinuity between the two. Not only because it came long after the promise, but also because the promised blessings to Abraham and his offspring came by faith, while the inheritance, the Mosaic law promised, came by obedience. Okay, so Paul is arguing this discontinuity between God's promise and the law. So the question then comes, if the law can't bring about God's promised blessings to Abraham and to his offspring, why give it at all? What's its purpose? And as the little-known Tina Turner song muses, what's law got to do with it? Got to do? I don't have the hair, never have, but you can, you can imagine, right? But, you know, she played that at her first couple shows, and it didn't go well, so she changed one word and became a hit song. But for us this morning, our song is still, What's Law Got to Do With It? And verses 19 to 26 give us three answers. Gives us three answers. The law increases 
transgressions, the law imprisons under sin, and the law identifies our need. So it increases transgressions, it, in, it imprisons under sin, and it identifies our need. So first, the law increases transgressions. As verse 19 says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Now here we start to get some of the difficulty because the Greek is really tough here. It's kind of hard and difficult and Paul just states things without explaining them. He just says, because of transgressions and then moves on. So this meaning is much debated. So I think what uh, we find help in chapter five of Paul's letter to the Romans when he says a little bit more but uses the same type of language. He says in chapter five, verse 20, now the law came in to increase the trespass to increase the trespass. He says trespass here and transgression in Galatians 3. So what I think he's trying to say is there is sin in all of us. There's sin in everyone everywhere. God gave the law to then show what is really inside of us. So there's sin here, and he makes it clear when that sin transgresses or trespasses God's will. So it just makes the sin clear. It increases sin and exposes it in order to bring it into the light. It's a weird way, maybe, for most of us to think about the law, but think about Israel's history. When God gave the law to Israel, it didn't decrease their sinfulness. It didn't restrain it. It actually increased it, and so much so that God sent them into exile because their sin increased and sin reigned. And so, well, again, we don't often think that God gave something to increase trespass to increase sin but he's not increasing something that wasn't already there he's just bringing it into the light he's showing that the sin nature that we all have actually transgresses and trespasses his law we tend to think of the law doing other things like restrain sin define sin deal with sin and those things are some functions of the law but ultimately if those are the main reasons god gave the law it actually plays right into the Judaizers' hand, doesn't it? The Judaizers were saying, hey, if you really want to be God's people, if you want to make sure you're truly one of his children, you must do these things and you can't do these other things. So if the law came in to restrain sin or define sin or it was given just to deal with sin, it actually plays right into the Judaizers' teaching. But the, that wasn't its main purpose. It's not that it doesn't define sin. There are ways the law dealt with sin, but that's not its main purpose. It was added to increase trespasses, Paul says. And that kind of makes God out to be cruel. You might think, well, that's kind of cruel of God. He gave something that actually increases the things he hates. But think of it this way. When you were a child, did you ever say to your parents or grandparents or whoever is watching you, I do it about something that you absolutely had no possibility of actually doing. Or maybe you have grandkids or kids or you babysit and do the same thing or you're down and rooted this morning and some kid says, I do it. And you just kind of smile and you pat them on the head. You know, okay, give it a whirl. But you actually knew they couldn't do it. And you let them try and when they failed, you came alongside and did it. Well, I think that's what verse 19 is getting at. God gave the law to increase sin and expose it to show that there's absolutely nothing we can do to escape or erase our sin, that we can't make ourselves righteous before God. 
to make it crystal clear that the law is not the answer to the question, how does God save sinners? The law was given to answer why we need saving in the first place, to make it clear to us. So this also isn't cruel of God, for the law increases sin so that the promised offspring can deal with it. That's why verse 19 continues, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. So God's not trapping us. He's showing us our need. And he only gave the law until the one who promised, uh, until the one who would come who he promised would deal with it. Now verse 16 says the offspring is Jesus, which we talked about a couple Sundays ago. So what God gave the law for was to increase sin just for a temporary time until Jesus came. Uh, when I grocery shop, uh, I don't look at the list as much as I look at the expiration dates for the things on the list. I'm like, bread, okay, but I know what stores do. They want to sell the stock they have, so they put all the stuff that's expiring like in six hours in the front. So for people who just look at the list, they just grab it and throw it in. You get home and you're like, this, mold, this bread's moldy already. You know, this, this milk is curdled like tomorrow. And so they, 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 I like to play the game. So I reach way in the back. I know the things in the back will still expire, but they're just not going to expire tomorrow. Now, in a similar way, the law came stamped with an expiration date in salvation history. And some people... In, in uh, this time period and throughout Israel's history thought the law was actually eternal. But Paul is beginning to argue that the law should never have been thought of not ever expiring. It came with an expiration date. It came to, uh, to increase sin until Jesus came to deal with it. So basically what Paul's arguing is by grabbing for circumcision or food laws as ways to be right with God. Let me say that clearly. Any, any of the law or those Mosaic covenants and the stipulations of it as a way to be right with God, as a way to find your basis of justification before God, for my status before God. If I look to the law like that, it's like grabbing milk that's already expired. That's what Paul is saying. Now, we got to stick with Paul here because why I make that point is Paul is not saying the law has nothing to do anymore. It has no purpose anymore. We're talking about salvation history. For a time, it was given to increase in until Christ came. It's not the way to find our status before God or base our relationship with God upon that, is, that came with an expiration date until Jesus came. He isn't saying there's no reason for the law today. There is, and he argues for that elsewhere. But here in verse 19, the point is the law isn't the way to relate to God. And far too often we Christians still act like this. We're still tempted to base our performing as the way of God's viewing me, my status before him, our, my relationship with God is this tenuous back and forth based on my doing. Paul says the law wasn't given as the way to relate to God. It was never its purpose. It was given to increase sin, and it had an expiration date printed on it when the promised offspring arrives. And praise God, he has. That's Paul's good news throughout this. We can't do it, but the one who came has come excuse me, the one who could has come. 
So Paul continues then to show the priority of God's promise to Abraham over the Mosaic law in verse 19. He says, it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God was one. Now, this is one of those verses uh, that make you feel like you've walked into an obscure theological argument. Paul uses tough language and dense arguments and doesn't really explain any of it and then just moves on to verse 23. And you're like, wait, hold on. None of this makes sense. He just expects you to keep up with him as he talks about angels and mediators. Okay, so let's work this out. What Paul says here is that the Mosaic law came to Israel from God, but through mediators, through intermediaries. Now, one of those was Moses. We see that in Deuteronomy 33. But some, uh, but part of Deuteronomy 33, part of Psalm 68, and then in the New Testament, when Stephen preaches in Acts 7, and the writer of Hebrews in chapter 2, both imply and say that the angels also were there and the, the mediators through whom God gave the Mosaic law. So what Paul is saying, and he's picking up on a truth that was widely believed in Judaism in that day, was that God gave the law to angels, who then gave the law to Moses, who then gave the law to the people. And that can bring up all sorts of questions. And I'm not going to answer any of them. No, I'm just kidding. Maybe not any of them. But that, that, he just states the fact. Okay, If you want to read Deuteronomy 33 and Psalm 68 and Acts 7 when Stephen's preaching and Hebrews 2, that's just, it's just implied and said that angels were an intermediary for the law. But just remember the context, the main point. We can get lost in the weeds, so I'm trying to help us stick to the main point. Remember the context. The Judaizers taught the law had priority over faith or at least was on par with faith. And so it seems one of the reasons they gave for uh, the Galatians to believe that was the fact that angels delivered the law. That gives evidence of its importance. It seems logical, right? Angels are in God's presence. They're fantastic supernatural beings. When they show up, people freak out, and they, they're important. If God sent them with something, it's important. So angels being part of the law, or part of the giving of the law, was seen as a positive. But Paul here turns it around and uses it to prove the inferiority of the law to the promise. So if you have a very important message, you don't give it to the youngest person around you to get to the person who needs to hear the message. You go to that person face to face. You give the most important messages directly. You give less important messages through intermediaries. That's Paul's point. God didn't use an intermediary in Genesis 15. He promised Abraham directly. So the law is subordinate to the promise in salvation history because God didn't give it directly. All right, so that's what he says in verse 19. Then comes probably one of the hardest verses in the New Testament, verse 20. And what in the world is going on? All right, so again, you've got to remember our first point. The law was given to increase transgressions. It wasn't meant to save, but to expose our sin. All right, verse 20 is very difficult because the, the Greek literally says, now the intermediary is not of one. Now, the mediator, intermediary, is not of one. That doesn't really make sense in English. It doesn't really make sense in a lot of languages. And most, if you don't use the ESV, if you use another, every major translation 
adds words here because Paul doesn't use a lot of words and then he just moves on. And the follow-up clause isn't much helpful. It's based on Deuteronomy 6. It's the Shema, but God is one. And then he just goes. He's like, if you have questions, talk to my secretary because I'm not going to deal with it right now. And then he, so it's just really difficult. So just remember, the law increases transgressions. So if we take a step back and look at the whole context from chapter three to now, I think what, when he says the intermediary is not of one, I think the word one points back to verse 16, the one offspring who is Jesus. So I think the best way to understand verse 20 is that the mediators, whether they're the angels or Moses, or even the intermediary between God and his people, the law itself, none of those things could bring about the blessings of the one. They couldn't bring about the one or the promised blessings of God. They're not of the one. They expose our need of the one. Everyone with me on that? And so whether it's uh, to prove the inferiority of the promise, I think that's maybe part of it, but I think God's got something more here for us. So what he's highlighting is everything about the Mosaic law, from the Mosaic law itself to the intermediaries, prove they're not the things that could bring about the blessings of God's promise. But they expose our need of the one. And so what I think the clause, but God is one, highlights God's promise to Abraham that was echoed throughout the Old Testament that God will one day reverse the curse of sin and death and all people everywhere will acknowledge him as the one true Lord. So let me say that again. God is one. That's the Shema. But what we see then throughout is that that is promised that God will be recognized throughout all creation as the one true God. Listen to Zechariah 14.9. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. And on that day, the last day, the Lord will be one and his name one. So what I don't think Paul is doing in Galatians 3 is arguing for the unity of God. God is one. That's clear. But I don't think that's the point. I think what he's saying is on this day, when God's purposes of blessing through Abraham, all the peoples of the earth, when they come to fruition, the whole world will say, God is one. His name is one. He is the one true king. All right, so these are a couple, excuse me, now I'm talking weird. These are a couple tough verses, and if uh, I've lost you, it's surely my fault, so let me help you get back on board, all right? What's the law given for? To increase sin and expose it until the one who could deal with it would come. That one will come by promise, not by performance. That's what, that's what verse 20 is getting at. There is nothing we can do to get the blessings of the one or to make the one come. It's all by grace and promise. God will save sinners by grace, through faith, not human works. And God's purpose to save a people, a people that will, amongst all the nations of the earth on that last day, acknowledge that he is the reigning king over all. All that will come about, not through works of the law, but by faith, but by promise by grace. It's always been God's plan to not have just ethnic Israel recognize him as the one true God, but to save a people for himself from all the nations of the earth to worship him as the one true God. And we will get to that point not by works of the law, but by faith in the one God promised. 
And so this is why the church exists today. This is why we are here, to proclaim the glories of our saving God in Jesus Christ. And one day, we know history is hurtling towards a day when every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And our, excuse me, and our purpose, five points, the reason why we exist is to proclaim the gospel, not of works, but of grace. Grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. And we do that to our neighbors and the nations. Why? Because there's coming a day where they will recognize Jesus as king. But we want them to do it in worship and joy, not in judgment. And so we proclaim to our neighbors and the nations around us the gospel so that they worship the one true God with us both now and forever. The, The law was given not to bring that about, is Paul's point. So not only is it subordinate to the promise, it's inferior. But it, has, it does have a purpose, and it was to increase and expose sin. So the natural question then uh, becomes, well, is the law contrary to God's purposes? That's verse 21. All right, so if there is a reason for the law, well, Paul pretty much just says it looks like it's, not, it's, not, uh, it's contrary to God's purposes. So that's he brings up the question, verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? If the law can't produce the promised blessings, then is it contrary to God's promises? Maybe you've heard of this little-known song. It muses, law, what is it good for? Absolutely nothing, right? No, I'm just kidding. So when he wrote that song, he immediately had to change it because when he read verse 21, he realized he was wrong, right? You would think Paul says the law is good for absolutely nothing, but he actually surprisingly says, certainly not. So secondly, not only does the law increase sin, the law imprisons under sin, continuing in verse 21. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, quickly here again, we come up against um, some translations differences. You, some of you use a, a Bible, and we've been talking about these things. Uh, it says faith in Jesus Christ in the ESV uh, and others. Some, like the New American Standard and other translations, say faith of Jesus Christ. And so what is, what is Paul's point? The, again, the, the context determines the meaning. And that word that's translated of uh, in some translations, or in and others, uh, is a very wide word in the original. It can mean in, of, by, through, for. It can mean a lot of things. But why the ESV translates in Jesus Christ is because I think what Paul is continuing to do throughout his arguing in Galatians is not contrasting my faithfulness and Jesus' faithfulness, but rather how does God save sinners? He saves sinners, not by their works, but by faith in Jesus. So what this does not mean is that Jesus is not faithful. He is. We'll sing about it. Paul is not negating that. He's not undercutting it. But what I think Paul's main point in these verses in Galatians is not my faithfulness as contrasted to Jesus' faithfulness, but works and faith, doing or believing. Everyone understand? 
It doesn't mean we, we trust in Jesus because he was completely faithful. But what's the, uh, what's, what's the main purpose of Paul's contrast here? It's not works, not Jesus' works and my works, but works and faith, uh, doing or believing. And so we see that there at the end of verse 21. might be given to those who believe. Again, we're contrasting this, what, what saves sinners? It is God in Jesus Christ through the power of the Spirit uniting us to Jesus by faith alone. That's, that's the Lord's normal means of purposes of salvation. Right? And so Paul continues to show here that the law and the promise were given for different reasons. Namely, that God never intended the law to be the path to life. Do you see that there in verse 21? If the law had been given, that could give life. Now, I've come uh, to love that little phrase, give life, while studying Galatians. And I hope you have and can, too. Uh, we were dead, but God gives life. And not by your works, but by faith, by grace. That's it. He, we were dead, but God gives just because he wanted to, just because he chose to. We were dead in sin, but God made us alive in Jesus Christ. We were dead, but it was no longer now I who live, but Jesus Christ who lives in me. And because I'm united to the living Lord by faith alone through the Spirit, I'm guaranteed the inheritance of eternal life with God, which I can partake of now through the power of the Spirit that I get to taste this life, feast on this life, know this life today. That God's power to do all that, to give life, comes by faith, not by works. If God intended the law to give life, to bring about the promised blessings, then it would. But God didn't intend it to do that. He intended it actually to imprison under sin, imprison under sin. And Paul here in this verse shifts from the word law to scripture in verse 22 to point out that one function, one reason for the entire Old Testament, the reason why the scriptures were given, was to imprison all things under sin. God didn't give the scriptures to free from sin, but to ensure that we were imprisoned under it, under the curse and power of sin. Jew and Gentile alike. When he says all things, he's not just talking about the Jewish people in salvation history. Now he's saying all, all things, creation, Jew and Gentile. Everyone is in need of redemption. And God imprisoning all things under scripture makes our greatest problem singular and identifiable. Singular and identifiable. In other words, God gave the law to imprison all under the same condemnation. Now that would make God cruel, if not for the rest of verse 22. The scripture imprisoned everything under sin. Why? So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So what's law got to do with it? It increased it. Why did it increase it? To imprison. It corralled all things under sin so that God could redeem all from the curse of sin and death. By imprisoning all, and I think there that all means Jew, Gentile, and creation. We know creation grows under the sin, the curse of sin, and is waiting for the redemption one day. 
And all people are under the curse of sin because we failed to do God's law. That's Galatians 3, 10 through 14. So by imprisoning all under the curse of sin, the same condemnation, God's one solution for our condemnation comes to all. Again, this is, this is tough sledding. So think about it this way. Um, because if you can understand this, this is not a theological obscure topic that will make you look smart if you drop it, you know, one day at the water cooler. This is something that if you, if you can grasp, you will be filled with joy all week long. All right, so let me try and help us out. If we're both sick, and that's Paul's point, everything, everywhere is sick, Jew, Gentile, creation, we're sick with sin. So if we're both sick, but I have health insurance, and you don't, I'm going to get some help, and you're not. You're going to get left in your sickness. All right? But Paul says the law was given to imprison us all together. He's not arguing for universal health care. Don't make this. Don't go there. Okay? We're not going there today. Right? What he's saying is because of our great problem, which is everyone's greatest problem, God didn't leave off some people. He didn't just, just do this for ethnic Israel. He imprisoned everything, Jew, Gentile, and creation under sin so that his one solution would be available to all. So that he's not going to be a God who saves some people and not others simply based on ethnicity or other reasons. That he has one purpose because he is one and he is united in that unity to make this one solution uh, or to accomplish his one solution that will be available to all peoples. Again, this is not universalism. He's not saying everyone will be saved. He's just stating the fact that God's promise to bless all the peoples of the earth through Abraham is going to come about, but it comes about when he gathers them all together under the same condemnation. And it did that so that God's promise to Abraham would be fulfilled in Jesus Christ by belief, not by works, not by earning it, not by cleaning ourselves up, not by making us deserving of it, but for those who look to Jesus and believe. All the promises, freely ours in Christ. So that's Paul's point of why the scriptures imprisoned and imprisoned us all to make one solution available to all. That leads to our third and final point. So thirdly, the law identifies our need. The law identifies our need. Look at verse 23. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law. He's just restating his point from before. The, uh, under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Everyone, everyone, everywhere fails to perfectly obey God. And the scripture imprisoned us in that failure under the curse of sin. The law wasn't given to free us from that curse, but to expose and imprison until the coming faith would be revealed. But Paul then argues that that imprisonment that the law does uh, comes in a very unique way. It doesn't come in like a jail cell. It doesn't lock us up in a cell. It actually acts like a babysitter, he says. Look at verse 24. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now that word, guardian is is tough to translate 
because contextually our culture and that culture are very different, but it seems to me that the best way to think about it is a babysitter. And that might be our stage of life that we just came out of, but I think that's what it's getting at. I don't think Paul is saying something positive or negative. He's just simply stating facts to try and help us understand the function of the law. And I think the best way to translate that word is babysitter. It's, it's a temporary watch, a, a thing that watches over his children. God gave the law to temporarily watch over Israel. This doesn't mean there wasn't saving faith in the Old Testament. We've already seen in Galatians that God justified Abraham by faith in Genesis 15. Right? So there was faith. But what is this faith? I think it's so the law came until Jesus was specifically revealed. They were just waiting for the promised seed, the promised offspring, the promised son. They did not know who it was. So the law was a temporary guardian until Christ was revealed until the promised one was specifically revealed in whom sinners should trust and believe. And as we do trust in Jesus, we receive God's promised blessings. The law was like a babysitter. When our kids were little, if we wanted to eat dinner without having to cut up all their food, then keep them occupied, then the first one who cut up their food needed seconds by the time I got done with the third one, and then they, the other ones were getting restless, and the people around us were like, why are these kids out in public? And everyone's like trying to go, and I'm like, well, my food's still here, and it's getting cold, so if I wanted to scarf down my food before it got cold, I'm trying, I needed a third hand in doing all that. Now, if we wanted to have a nice dinner without all that chaos, we would get a babysitter because we didn't leave them at home because we knew what kind of chaos that would ensue. And some of them might not make it alive by the time we got back. So we got a babysitter. Now, when I was little, my parents did the same thing. But they stopped long ago getting me a babysitter. My dad lives in Muskegon. It would be weird if he's going out to church or out to lunch after the service in Muskegon and say, you know, I'm going out to lunch. I got to get JJ a babysitter. And he sends someone from Muskegon who walks in here, comes down the front row, and sits down here to help me off the stage and take me home. Put me down. I would love to get put down for a nap, but you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, sure. Maybe, actually, let's, I want to try this. I want to get a babysitter. <laughs> someone, someone grab me lunch and put me to bed later. You know, let me sleep for as long as I can. No, I'm just kidding. It would be weird. You know, it, it just, it happened, it stopped happening long ago. And that's Paul's point. Similarly, the law was intended to be enforced for a limited time in God's redemptive plan. In salvation history, not overall, the law is not evil. The law is holy, he says in Romans. There's still a function of it. That's not Paul's point. Don't get sidetracked. There is still function today, but what Paul is arguing is that in redemptive history, God's plan for the law was to serve a limited, temporary, but specific function. So just as you wouldn't go on your way home to the store and pick out the curdled milk, you don't get grown children babysitters. You, you wouldn't do it. The false teachers in Galatia and the Galatians themselves had failed to see God didn't design the law to be permanent. It was supposed to be temporary, a babysitter. And the end of the babysitting era isn't Israel growing up or figuring out their sin. 
If, if the law was given to restrain sin or define sin or deal with sin, as the Judaizers were probably saying, then they would argue it, it, you have to figure out the sin thing through the law. But the end of the law's babysitting era isn't growing up or finally figuring out your sin and cleaning yourself up and not doing some things and doing other things. The end of the law's babysitting era came with the arrival of faith in Jesus Christ. He alone is the path to life. Alone. God gave life. It was not meant to. If God wanted the law to do that, it would have happened, but that wasn't the purpose. We have life only if our faith is in Jesus. Look at verse 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. And, and we might not have these debates on the forefront of our mind each week, but there is the temptation in all of us still to prove ourselves worthy of God's love, of God's grace, to define ourselves in terms of how well I did in such and such last week. And if I had a good week, it was mainly because I prayed and read my Bible and, you know, didn't sin very much and blah, blah, you know, all these things. We start to rattle off. I'm tempted to view my standing before God from my performance. But the law, as a guardian, undercuts the temptation to see it as the way of salvation, as the way of staying saved, of continuing to walk with the Lord, that it's my performance. So actually, Paul's argument here is helpful for us today because it undercuts the temptation to see the law as a way of salvation if we realize it was a babysitter. We don't need a babysitter. We have Jesus. All right, it was never meant to give life, but to show the need, uh, to show that we need life to be given to us. The law was never meant to justify, but to expose how unrighteous and helpless sinners really are. So, rather than being contrary to God's purposes, the law as a guardian shows that God always meant to justify by faith. That it wasn't meant to as the way to be justified. These boxes we need to check for God to save us, but to expose our helplessness in justifying ourselves. It's not the solution, it exposes our need. And it imprisons us until Christ came. One translation, I really, I love it, it says the law was uh, imprisoned to lead us to Christ. I think that's actually better than the ESV. Uh, verse 23, now before the law came, we were, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned to lead us to Christ. And I think that's right. It exposes, identifies our needs, but doesn't leave us there. It points us to Jesus. So Paul's whole point, again, in so far in Galatians, is how does God save sinners? And the Judaizer says, it's, be, it's stuff you need to do. That's how God saves sinners. And Paul keeps going over and over and going back and saying, no, it was never meant that way. That was never God's plan. So why go back to law keeping? You're not even keeping the law in the way God meant it in the first place. It was never meant to be the way of salvation. It's not only a mountain you can't climb, it's a mountain that leads to eternal death. It was never designed to give life and freedom. So going back to the law would be like, my dad getting me a babysitter the next time he goes out with friends. I'm 43. I'd be like, stop. <laughs> I don't need a babysitter. You're going back to it. 
you're, you're buying curdled milk. You're, buy, you're, you're buying crusty bread. You're, buy, you're, you're buying disgusting, moldy fruit when the glories of the gospel are there for you to feast on. Why go back? You're going back into slavery and death. If you take on the law, you have to keep it all, and you can't. Why would you go back? Christ has come. In him is life and joy and freedom. Don't put the chains back on. So brothers and sisters, if someone asked you this week, what's it mean for you to be a Christian? If you, say, if they, if you see them tomorrow and they say, oh, what did you do yesterday? And you say, well, I went, I went to worship at, uh, with my church yesterday. Oh, well, why? What's, what's that all about? What, what, is that what, that, that's what a Christian is, right? You just go, you go to church. How would you answer? If the first things that come to mind are the things you do, then you're in the same danger the Galatians were in. You're in danger of turning to a false gospel. If the first things that come to mind when someone says, what's it mean to be a Christian, are things you do. For the gospel is the good news about what God has done and not news about what sinners must do. Right? So rather than having the first thing come to mind be something you do when you answer what's it mean to be a Christian, the first thing that should come to mind is what we are. The law proves that we are sinners in need of saving because the answer to our greatest problem will never be in ourselves. It can never come from the outside. It's got to come from the outside to us. The first things that should come to mind are who God is and who we are and who Jesus is and what he's done and all the blessings I've received for no work of my own. That's what it means to be a Christian. Now, there are things we do. The gospel is not first imperatives. It's not first commands. The, the gospel is always first, here it is, so then. It's Paul's point. Now we walk with Jesus. We live in Jesus. I'm alive in Jesus. I don't live. It's not me who lives. It's Christ who lives in me. So we live a crucified Jesus life, but we don't crucify ourselves to get Jesus. That comes after. So again, we have to hold these in tension because I've said this before. Satan just wants to either swing us from one side to the other. If he can say, see, the law, the law. Paul says, no, certainly not. And then he's, oh, well, then I got to do. Paul says, certainly not. It's, it's, it's this tension of finding our life in Jesus and walking in him. The gospel is never what we do. It's the good news of what God has done for people like us for sinners who could never save ourselves. What's it mean to be a Christian? I was once lost and dead in sin, imprisoned under sin's curse, but praise God, he exposed it by his grace and led me to Jesus. I hope that is your story too, friend. If it's not, if it's not, then you're looking for life in places you will only find slavery come out. The exposing light seems dangerous, but in the exposing light, you'll be led to Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, this is our story. And the more and more you revel in this story, that I was dead in sin and lost in darkness and imprisoned under this curse and had no hope of life, 
God exposed it and led me to Jesus. The more that becomes your story, it'll be the song you sing all week long. Let's pray. Father, these are difficult verses, and I pray that uh, as we waded through them, uh, we wouldn't just cast them off as unnecessary. We need to know the answer to verse 19 and verse 21 and verse 23. And so if there's anything that I made less clear, I pray the Spirit would cause those to fall away and that the glory of Jesus would be seen as the answer. That the law was given to show that what we could not do, we have in Jesus Christ. And so we pray more and more that we would find our life in Him alone, that His name would be on our lips in the song of the gospel in our hearts so that you might get all the glory in everything we say and do. We ask these things by the power of your Spirit to be true in us. Amen.